If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Go check it out for all your music podcast needs, and be sure to hit subscribe to this one and leave us a nice review. Today on the show, I interview Jesse Fink. Jesse is an author of several books, including two on the legendary Australian rockers ACDC. His second book of the band takes a look into the final years and days of Bon Scott, the band's longtime frontman. I was amazed at how much mystery surrounded this band, and we touch on a few of these, including songwriting credits and the mystery surrounding Bon's far too early death in 1980. Jesse's knowledge is brought upon by years of research, and it shows as he and I dig into the details of the band. Trust me, you will definitely want to hear his thoughts on You Shook Me All Night Long, so please, please help me welcome Jesse Fink. Okay, so we're here with Jesse Fink, who um, is an author and um, has written a couple books on ACDC, but specifically we're going to talk about Bond, The Last Highway, which, um, as I said, I'm not all the way through, but most of the way through and, and plan to finish this week regardless. And I just wanted to start out trying to figure out what were your reasons for wanting to write a book about Bond? after you had already released and written one about ACDC and the Young Brothers? Um, well, two reasons. One, uh, the book was successful. Um, yeah. It got published in over a dozen countries. I think it was 16 at last count. So, you know, clearly there's a love of ACDC around the world. And I was very um, heartened by the reaction that the book got. Um so my publisher, Penguin in Australia, was, was very interested in me doing another book and it just seemed like a sort of a natural progression to do something on Bon Scott um, because, as, as I said to you while we were chatting earlier, um, you know, he's a bit of a folk hero in Australia. He's always been someone that I've been fascinated by yeah. he's a bit of a kind of a um sort of a maverick unusual character who who died very young and but most importantly kind of produced an incredible body of work in a very short space of time yeah and 
So when when the publisher was was interested in in me doing it, I thought, yeah, that sounds like a worthy project. And then I initially was planning on um, making the book uh, take place between the, the years 1977 to 79 and all of it taking place in in America because I, I'd, I'd read the other ACDC books and I always felt that the, the American part of the story had never really been adequately told. And if you look at the touring history of ACDC in the late 70s, it, most of it took place in America. Yeah. And, and really for me, I, I always thought that the most interesting, interesting part of that story was how ACDC broke in America. So the initial idea was me kind of writing, I guess, you know, Bond's American Journeys. Okay. 77 to 79. But then as I got into it and, and I, you know, I found it actually very difficult putting it all together. I realized that I couldn't avoid the, um, the, the issue of his death in London in 1980. And it was something that, you know, I was very um, loath to, to, um, get involved in because I just thought I'm going to go down this big rabbit hole. Yeah. And, and of course it was right. I went down a huge rabbit hole. Oh yeah. And that, that final part of the book, the whole part about the, um, the death of Bond ended up taking, you know, a year and a half, two years just to sort of put that together. Wow. Just finding those puzzle pieces. Huh? Because it was, yeah. Cause it was just such a, such a sort of fragmented, um, hard to follow story that had never really been told in a very convincing way. Certainly, you know this. You know the 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 anointed narrative of of you know how he died in in, in the back of a car in London from acute alcoholic poisoning just yeah. never sort of struck me as very believable. Um, and why is that exactly? Well, because, you know, if you talk to anyone who knew Bond, they said that, you know, he was just a, a guy who had a remarkable um, capacity to imbibe la- large amounts of alcohol. And okay. so the idea of him sort of dying at the age of 33 um, from acute alcoholic poisoning just, it just didn't strike me as... Um, like I said before, believable. I thought there had to be something else involved. And, you know, I, I was aware that, you know, the people that he was hanging out with and, and the, the person that he was last seen with were, um, you know, involved in the drug scene. So yeah. I thought that there were drugs involved in it, but I didn't know, you know, to what extent or um, what the actual story started, started putting all the pieces all together. So... There was a an author called Clinton Walker, an Australian writer. Yeah, who wrote the first biography of Bond Scott, and you know I read that many years ago, and and I thought it was a a good piece of work. Until I started looking into the death myself, and I realised that I um, had a very different take on how Bond died, and I thought that sort of. Walker neglected to include certain things in his updated book that he released in 
2015 that that were really important. So, for instance, um, Bart, you know, 15 odd years ago, with two of the guys from UFO who gave a totally different kind of story about, you know, when they found out Bond was dead, which was on the morning of the 19th, uh-huh. as opposed to the conventional story, which was Alistair Kinnear coming out to the car on the evening of the 19th and finding Bond dead. So there were two sort of opposing stories. So when Walker updated his book in 2015 and he kind of dismissed the accounts of Pete Way and Paul Chapman and didn't even look into it, I just thought, you know, you're, you're not doing your job. You know, if you're, if you're Bond's biographer, you need to look into it and there's something there. And, and so I guess I just took it upon myself to find out how the two the, the the two versions of Bond's death sort of matched, yeah, or could match, mm-hmm. um, and so it sort of became a um, a detective exercise, really, a, an investigation. And you know, I absorbed every possible piece of information um, that I could find on Bond's death, which there's not a lot of it. I mean, there's so much that I, as I'm reading through it, obviously your your research for it was extensive and took you, like you said, like all over America for the most part. And I'm wondering, um, being that you and seemingly all authors have such limited direct access to the band, how do you go about researching something like this? Like, how are you tracking down these people that were a part of their life? It's such an interesting way to go about it just not being able to go directly to the people that were there kind of sure absolutely it was extremely frustrating when i wrote the youngs because you know the young started out as a book that i mean i was paying tribute to those guys um i thought that getting access to them would be a lot easier um and in fact, it proved incredibly difficult for me to get any access at all, apart from access to, you know, people who had formerly played in the band. So when um, when Bond sort of came up as a project, I kind of realised even before I'd started that I most likely am not going to have access to anyone. But that's okay, you know, because I learned... Uh, from writing the youngs, how you could write a story about a group of people without having access to them, hmm. and you know, it's 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 simple kind of uh, research. It's like you you know you write lists of people who are important in the story. You contact them. You you uh, see if they'll talk to you, and you know, seventy percent of the time they will. Thirty thirty percent of the time they won't. Um, but often in that seventy percent you get some valuable nuggets. Yeah. And, uh, but with, with Bon, you know, I, I thought, you know, I don't want to write just a rehashed ACDC book. And so many times when people write the ACD, ACDC story, they just rehash the same old shit over and over and over yeah. and over again. I wanted to write it. Wanted to write a completely original story, and so I literally um, had a map of America, 
and started, you know, pinning the cities where ACDC visited between 77 and 79. Yeah. Um, you know, to sort of map out, map out the, you know, the, 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 the road that they took. Um, and I started going through old copies of Billboard magazine, um, which are available online. Yep. And finding out what the name of the local FM station was that was likely playing um, ACDC at that time. And then I would find out who the DJs were by going through old broadcasting magazines. <laughs> and then I would find them on Facebook and and contact them and say, hey, you know, Look, I know that you, you know, worked as a DJ in, in um, you know, in Manhattan in 1977 or whatever. And did you ever come across ACDC? Uh, not many of them had, but there were a few who, who had. Yeah. And one of them was a guy called Neil Mursky, who was a DJ down in Orlando in 1979. And he said, oh, you know, yeah, Um it just so happens I've got a interview with Bond that I've never played before, and you know you can have it. Wow! So it was like three minutes, three minutes or something of Bond Scott talking to Neil Mursky in Florida in '79, which is like amazing. Izzy, we are uh, backstage with Bond Scott, the lead singer of AC/DC. Welcome to Florida. Thank you, Neil. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I love the place. <laughs> have you ever been to Florida before playing? Gee, we, we used to spend five weeks down here uh, a couple of months back to write the new album, which is uh, like the Highway to Hell album. Is that the name of it, Highway to Hell? Uh, tentatively, yeah, yeah. We were down here in, like on, on Miami Beach for five weeks. To come across something like that, you know, for, for, for me, it was like extraordinary. And it, yeah. had only happened, it had only happened because I just methodically kind of just went through this list and contacted these people, and and that's what you know. I would say to any person who's thinking of writing a biography, you can never do too much research because yeah. you never know what you're going to find when you do it. So, I met Neil. Neil was very kind to give me that interview. I uploaded it on YouTube, and um, and then he introduced me to a friend of his who had hung out with Bon Scott in 1979 in Miami. This guy is called Michael Fazolari, who was in, in a band called Critical Mass, which is like a early version of Green Day. They're even better than Green Day. And they had <laughs> some minor success in, in 1980. Anyway, and they were hanging out with ACDC and Bon Scott in Miami while they were rehearsing Highway to Hell. Yeah. And so this whole sort of suddenly opened up for me where – where it was like, oh, shit, I have an opportunity to tell a story that's never been told before, which is mm -hmm. ACDC in Miami mm -hmm. in 1979 rehearsing what would be the Highway to Hell album. And through my a girlfriend that, um, that Bon had, and we got in touch with each other and she invited me to come and stay with her, and I did. And it was suddenly like, wow, I've got a story now. Amazing. You know, that, that, that's just a good example of like, you know, when you think that you've got nowhere else to go, if you just go and do the research, suddenly, you know, things just suddenly materialise and you, you've, you've actually got a book. Yeah. I mean, that's what it kind of seems like in terms of just continuing to turn over rocks and 
you'd think that eventually yeah. you're going to get something. And then it's just kind of a domino effect from there. I want to touch on something quickly because I found this really interesting because at the beginning of the book, it kind of starts by saying that Malcolm Young is the best living rhythm guitar player. And I was wondering what attributes to that. Cause I don't think I've ever heard that claim before. So that really stuck out to me. Oh, I mean, I, I I'd always kind of really liked Malcolm from an early age. Uh, one, cause he just didn't look like a rock star at all. No, you know, <laughs> you know, long haired homunculus, you know, with a guitar that was, you know, too big for him. But, you know, he, he just sort of produced these sounds, this sort of very simple, you know, riffs that, you know, uh, they just they just sort of are etched in your in your brain. You, you, you don't forget them, you know, and, that, and that's the thing with ACDC. They're never trying to do, sort of do anything too flashy or they're, they're not show-offs. Yeah. It's, it's just simple rock. And I, I guess when I wrote The Youngs, you know, it opens, you know, with me going to the, you know, this this art museum in, in New York and seeing um, Munch's The Scream painting and, and me not being sort of touched by it and then leaving the gallery and putting on a pair of headphones and listening to Back in Black and thinking it was the most awesome thing that I'd ever heard in my life. Yeah. And there's this sort of tendency, I think, to look down on things that are seen as simple, okay. you know, that they're not artistic enough yeah. or they're not ambitious enough. You know what, you know, when you distill something down to its very basic ingredients and you, and, and you, you manage to make it, you know, powerful and memorable and, and, and brilliant like ACDC does, it's an art. So, you know, when you, when you look at, sort of, you know, musically kind of what that band created during that period and, you know, the amazing amount of riffs that, you know, they've introduced into our musical consciousness and which we still listen to and remember every day. Yeah. You know, Malcolm was responsible for so much of that. And, you know, personally, I, you know, yes, Angus Young is an, is an amazing lead guitarist. Um, but for me, the sound of ACDC is Malcolm Young. And those power chords. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. You, you said in uh, 1977 you felt that Bond songwriting during that tour peaked. And I was wondering just if you could expand on that a little bit because I don't think that he probably gets nearly enough credit as a songwriter, like an actual lyricist. And I like that you wanted to touch on that a little bit, but I'd like for you didn't go into it in too much detail in the book. You kind of touched on it, but I'd like to kind of get the reasoning behind that. Um, well, I think the great thing about ACDC songs from that period and why they still resonate with fans to the degree which they do is because you can relate to him. He's, he, you know, on, on the, on the Power Age album, which I think is ACDC's best album, you know, he's writing songs about sort of being kicked in the guts by, by women. Yeah. You know, or losing out in love, or you know, not having money. Well, you know, ba- just basic sort of human uh, issues that we all face at one time or another. Yeah, and I think that's why those songs connect so brilliantly with 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 listeners. And 
you know, he, he does that again on, you know, Highway to Hell, you know, songs like, um, um, you know, Shot Down in Flames, be, being turned down by a woman, you know, he's trying to pick up. So they're just sort of simple themes and and I think that's why they work. And, and not only is he a very compelling kind of performer and a great singer, he's a, he's just a great lyricist. He's funny. Yeah. Uh, he's witty. He's got a great turn of phrase. Um, and, and that's what I think so much later period ACDC lacks. And... I think that after Bond died, sort of the, the, the lyrics generally sort of just became really kind of juvenile and, you know, sort of puerile. Yeah. And I don't relate or connect to it. Yeah, I know what you mean. You had said that uh, love song. different side of Bond. And this was an ACDC song that I hadn't heard. So I kind of wanted to touch on that specifically. What I mean, that's kind of in that era of what you were talking about. Like he's he's going through these things that we can all relate to with women um, and relationships and things like that. And But what, what about it, this song just kind of piqued your interest of like, oh, I haven't really heard him go down this road. Was it just because it's a little more tender? Well, I mean, that's a song that's you know, it was sort of regarded as, I think Angus Young called ACDC's worst song. Oh, really? <laughs> Which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, I can't really tell you too much about that because I, I've never really kind of looked so much into into the love song. That's all right. But I do know, I do know the guy that, you know, played the drums on it, for instance. Like that's a, that's a, a little bit of a story that, People didn't know until I wrote the Youngs was, you know, the guy who was the drummer on Love Song um, is a guy called Tony Carinti, a guy who um, is a is an Italian migrant who just sort of happened to be the studio sort of drummer for that album, and he was asked to sort of he was recording with another band, and he was asked to stay back and play in the studio. For Vander and Young and record the drum tracks for ACDC's first album. And he mm-hmm. ended up, I think it was, contributing drum track seven of the, the song. He had an Italian passport and it meant that if he went back to, to Europe, he would uh, he would have to be conscripted into the Italian army. He didn't want to do military service, so he turned them down. Now, Tony sort of gave up drums in, I think it was 1977 or so, and didn't touch them. Um, for another 37 odd years and then I walked into his his pizzeria in um, in Sydney where literally you walk in and you see this you know 
small fat Italian guy, you know, sort of flipping pizzas, um, who looks like, you know, uh, your typical kind of Italian granddad. And it's like, what? He played for AC, didn't he? <laughs> Are you kidding me? And, and the amazing thing was that, you know, Tony hadn't sort of spoken to any journalist ever about his time um, with ACDC. And if you read sort of previous books on ACDC, his name had been misspelled or, you know, they just got the story completely wrong. And anyway, and so I went while I was writing The Youngs and I sat down with him and I heard his story and it was remarkable. And, you know, to think that, you know, the biggest band in the world um, had a, a guy who's, you know, making pizzas at a, at a suburban pizzeria in Sydney. Um, was their first drummer and, and people didn't know about it. I just thought it was extraordinary. Yeah. And, I, you know, I asked Tony, what's your favourite ACDC song? What's the, you know, the, the one you love the most? And, and he he actually played on High Voltage, the single, you know, so a classic ACDC song. He actually yeah. said the love song was his favourite track. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. Ever wonder how my voice is bouncing off your eardrums so clean and crispy? No? Well, let me tell you anyway. The Lyra Microphone by AKG brings their legendary acoustic engineering to a versatile USB mic that delivers the highest quality audio in its class. USB connection. This is good for me because of the simplicity and the ability to just plug and play without an interface. You may have gathered from various episodes that I am doing this show on the road, so being that I record most interviews in a different location than the last, it is good for me to know that I have a high-quality, easy-to-transport-and-use USB mic like the Lyra to make sure my sound is clean. Whether you're like me and recording a podcast, a musician recording vocals or an instrument, or if you need to do a voiceover for a YouTube channel... Lyra's innovative AKG Adaptive Capsule Array adapts to your performance to record pristine audio. It has four versatile capture modes. What's a capture mode, you ask? That is how the mic picks up your voice. Just trust me, with these four options, it's really all you're going to need. With AKG Lyra, you'll be up and running in no time, no matter your experience level. There's no assembly, no need for separate audio interface, no fiddling with software settings. It just works right out of the box. And Lyra is something that is compatible with Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android devices, and all major recording softwares. So... If you're looking for a mic that offers ease of use along with a high-quality sound, check out the AKG Lyra and look no further. I want to get into the thick of it now because obviously the main controversy of this band has to do with Back in Black. And I'm wondering, can you just explain, because you're, you're, my, you're my expert on this, what is the debate in terms of songwriting credits? And then I've got a couple of follow-up questions on that, but let's just kind of start with just kind of the general debate of this scenario. Uh, well, I guess, you know, the, the anointed ACDC story around Back in Black is that it's a tribute album to Bon, bon Scott. Yep. Um, you know, the all-black cover song Back in Black... Back in Black. 
hills, bells, etc., are all, you know, tributes to Bon Scott, who had tragically passed away in London in February 1980. Um, now, it has been said and rumoured for many years that contributed lyrics to that album, which were uncredited. So if you look at the credits to the Back and Black album, it says Young, Young Johnson. Um, Brian Johnson played in a, a, a British band called Geordie. He was asked to audition after the death of Bond. He got the job sort of within two months of, you know, Bond dying in London. They were in the Bahamas and they recorded Back in Black, for which Brian Johnson got credit for writing the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, Back in Black went on to become, the you know, the biggest selling rock album, hard rock album of all time. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is remarkable in itself, but it's even more remarkable that it was all done sort of within the space of two months from, you know, by, by a, a guy who had only written, I think, three songs for his previous band in the whole time that they were together. Yeah. So I obviously was interested in looking at that issue of whether Bond had contributed lyrics to Back in Black um, as well as sort of doing my best to kind of solve the issue of, you know, how we die. So they were the sort of the two thrusts of, of the book and, you know, very, very difficult things to answer. But I thought, like, if I don't sort of tackle them, then I'm not, not doing my job. Well, and especially given the, the writing of the songs, I think that, I mean, you give some really compelling evidence. And I've heard interviews with Brian Johnson where he, in detail, tries to describe writing the the opening line to You Shook Me All Night Long and, and all these things and, like, his fascination with cars and mixing that in with women and stuff like that. But you give really compelling argument, uh, you know, for Bond as well. So it's a really interesting argument. Yeah, and, and the thing is, you know, Angus... Young and Brian have, you know, told their versions of how those songs were written and there have been sort of subtle differences in, in those stories, you know, as they've been told over the years. And I couldn't help but notice, you know, some, some of these contradictions. But, you know, what I realised, you know, from looking into, you know, um, albums like Power Age and Highway to Hell, was that Bond wrote from his life, right? So it stood to reason that if that if Bond had written songs on Back in Black, that they were about people that he knew. Yeah. You know, I had this serendipitous encounter with ex-girlfriend who is given the name Holly X, and I'm hanging out with Holly in Miami, and I'm meeting people that, you know, she and Bond knew and, and hearing about how close the two of them were. And I remember Holly sort of saying, you know, Bon, you know, used to come out to my place and hang out and, and you know, we had a great time and, and I had a horse that he really loved and we would go and I would ride the horse and he would watch me riding this horse. And I'm thinking, you know, where's this story going? You know, what's this got to do with it? And she <laughs> said, oh, the horse's name, horse's name was Double Time.
okay? And like, ping! Yeah. You know, suddenly it's like, holy shit, did, did she just say what I thought she said? <laughs> and and suddenly I'm looking at the lyric in, you know, you shook me all night long, you know, working double time on the seduction mark. I'm thinking, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that possible? And, uh, but, you know, I met, I met her in person, you know, so I'm meeting someone that I suspect could have been the subject of the song, You Shook, you shook Me All Night Long. And, you know, she's saying to me, oh, I, I remember, you know, going out to the Newport Hotel in Miami and, you know, lying down out by the pool and, and you know, Bond telling me that I had, you know, chartreuse eyes, you know, because they were so green. Yeah. And, and 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 then you look at a lyric like sightless eyes in the in the song and you're thinking, well, you know, I've always heard that lyric, but it's never actually kind of made sense to me. What are sightless eyes? <laughs> you know? And chartreuse eyes make sense, but sightless eyes? Why did she have sightless eyes? So you know, I'd always felt like that first verse of, of You Shook Me All Night Long sounded like Bon Scott. It just had the zip, the zip, the zip in the ring of, of, of Bon Scott. And, you know, lines like, she told me to come, but I was already there. You know, which Silver Smith, Bon's other girlfriend, had, had said that she'd actually spied in one of his notebooks. Suddenly, you know, kind of all these things pieces of information are coming together and I'm thinking, well, you know, if we if we take the hypothesis that Bond had something to do with Back in Black, if there's a song on the album that could have been his, it's this one. Yeah. It's this one because it as as a listener, it, it it for me it screams Bon Scott. Yeah. Right? And so there you know there are a whole whole bunch of things which I go into in the book about that particular song. Yep. And I've never been convinced that it's a song that, that Bond had nothing to do with. But then, you know, you can look at a song like Back in Black and, you know, if you think of it as a song about money, it kind of makes sense, you know. We've sort of been told that it, it, it's a song about, you know, memorialising a dead man. But if you actually th- sort of listen to it and think, you know, maybe he's talking about being back in the black, which, which Bond was by the end of 1979 because I actually went to the trouble of um, applying for and getting his certificate of probate, which listed his assets at the time of his death, right? Bond had $31,000 to his name, right? So he finally had some money in his account after however many years of hard slog and toil on the road, right? It's a song about, having money again, you know, it, it, it might not be true. I mean, I'm not saying in this book that any of this um, can be proved. Yeah, yeah. But I present enough information for a reader or, or a listener to just look at what I'm saying, listen to the song, and then come up with your own ideas about whether it's, it's um, feasible or not. And certainly me after spending time with his, with his ex-girlfriend in Miami and just seeing, you know, what a sensational sort of woman she was or is 
and, and you know what she would have been in 1979 everyone wanted a piece of holly x you can imagine bond you know writing songs about her um so i think there are songs on you know highway to hell which are about her um and um uh, you know michael fazolari who was hanging out with acdc and bon scott in Miami in 1979, says he has no doubt that songs on Highway to Hell are about Holly. So I think particularly You Shook Me All Night Long um, could well be a Bon Scott song. And, in fact, I'm convinced it's a Bon Scott song. Um, So, you know, but I'm not saying definitively that it is. That's just my, my view after having sort of done this research into, into, you know, Bond's final movements in, in the United States. Yeah. And I've seen something where you've um, pointed out a discrepancy in the Young's version of things where I think sometime in like the mid to late eighties, they said one thing about it being a tribute to him or giving him credit in some way, shape or form. And then further down the road, kind of taking that away again. Yeah, there was a, a story in um, uh, Australian Rolling Stone in 1998 with a journalist called Alyssa Blake, um, where she where she asked Angus Young, she said, have you ever thought about quitting? And Angus said, quote, the only time was when Bond died. We were in doubt about what to do, but we had songs that he had written and wanted to finish the songs. Hmm thought it would be our tribute to Bon and that album became Back in Black. Then you've got another, a second interview, which happened seven years earlier with Kerrang! magazine, where Angus was talking with Paul Elliott. Paul Elliott asked him, you know, who wrote the lyrics on Giving the Dog a Bone and the others on Back in Black, Bon or Brian or both? And Angus says, Bon wrote a little of the stuff. So he had something to do with it. Um, and previously, you know, the story was that it was um, have a drink on me and let me put my love into you. So that had changed. So, you know, little details like that to, to the average person who's reading the story, they're not going to think anything of it. But exactly. obviously I know the backstory. I've, I've read the interviews in the past. And it's, it's just striking me that there is a huge contradiction there. Either Bond had something to do with the lyrics or he didn't. It can't, they can't, it can't be both. There's a mystery there, and what I'm heartened by is that having, you know, started uh, Bond Scott Forum on Facebook and we've got like a healthy little community of Bond fans there, that people are really talking about it now. It's not seen as like this sort of wild conspiracy theory, Um, this sort of complete unhinged sort of conspiracy theory, which, you know, people, some people like to paint it as, which, you know, certainly some members of the, you know, the hardcore ACDC community will not um, will not listen to any suggestion that, you know, Bond had something to do with Back in Black. But I can tell you that there are a lot of people out there now who are starting to, to think this way. Um, okay, let's circle back into just kind of the, the like I said, I haven't 100% finished it, but what I assume is the end of the book and mm. the um, and just the mystery surrounding his death. Because like you said earlier, there's another author that originally published one, had a different take, re-updated it in 2015, and hasn't, in your opinion, come a, 
to the same conclusion as you have? I don't think he covered all the bases that he had to. And, you know, I respect him for his 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 earlier work, but I completely disagree with his conclusions. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the most significant thing was that, uh, you know, the, the, the conventional story is that, that Bond was only with another one other person, which was Alastair Kinnear. He was yeah. this sort of, you know, mystery individual um, that uh, no one knew really anything about. But, you know, by the accounts of people that I spoke to, that he was heavily involved in heroin, was, was dealing heroin. Chapman, the, the late guitarist of UFO, said that um, he was waiting for Bond to return to his flat with heroin. The people that I spoke to who were at the Music Machine Club in Camden on the evening of the 18th, early morning of the 19th of February 1980, believed that, um, you know, Bond had um, snorted heroin, that he was off his chops and wasn't in a good way. If you uh, speak, you know, there aren't that many people to speak to who were there or were had seen Bond that night. Mm-hmm. But it became very clear to me from speaking to the people who were still alive that Bond was very, very entrenched in the the London heroin scene at that time. Yeah. Um. So you know, here we have a guy who was famous for his you know capacity to drink. You know, Paul Chapman's nickname was Tonker. You know, and he said, um, you know, I, I could drink. You know, unbelievably, but you know, nothing compared to Bond. So you know, here's a, here's a man who has this sort of superhuman sort of capacity to ingest alcohol, but he's dead in, in the back of Renault in London. Um, you know, found in the back of a car at the age of thirty-three. Um, for me, given you know what Bond was involved in in the lead up to. He was hanging out with um, who he was with on the last night, etc. It became very clear to me that um, he had had a heroin overdose, which you know had had mixed with alcohol and, and caused a fatal reaction. But I, I guess the you know the the most important kind of thing that I came up with was that Bon and, and Alistair were with a third person, or possibly even a fourth person at Alistair's flat back in East Dulwich, a woman called Zena Kukuli. He was the manager of um, Lonesome No More, which was the band that was playing at the Music Machine that night. Okay. She said that she was back there with Alistair and Bon. That had never been said in any kind of, you know, inquest. No one had called Zula, uh, sorry, uh, Zena to, um, you know, talk about the fact that she was there. Uh, Zena's sister, who was the lead singer of Lonesome No More, was a woman that she spoke to me. She didn't want to be identified when the book was originally published and then subsequently she's died. So it's okay for me to actually say this now. But she said, I saw Bond that night, you know, and as a former heroin user, he looked stoned. That's an eyewitness account. It's not, it's not like hearsay. This is from someone who was there. They said, I saw Bond with my own eyes. He looked stoned on heroin. Again, 
I have no definitive proof that, that, that Bond had a heroin overdose, but I think if you put all these sort of pieces of information together about what was going on that night, who he was with, who he was hanging out with, what he was there to do, you can't come away with it without any other conclusion that heroin had something to do with it. So my theory is that Bond quite possibly was was already dead by the time you know they got to the flat in East Dulwich. And then he was left in the car for as long as possible before they drove to the hospital in the hope that um, whatever traces of heroin were in his system had some, somehow miraculously sort of uh, disappeared by the time, um, you know, the autopsy was performed. Okay, so, that's you know, interesting. I, I looked into, you know, um, the effects of heroin on the body, how long heroin st- that stays in the body after an overdose and so on, and that's all talked about in the book. and. I think it's it's quite possible that that was what they were trying to do. Um, now, and since the book was written, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery about that whole um, night. And I've put it together as as well as I can. I've come up with sort of two theories about what happened. Um, my 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 strong belief is that he died of a heroin overdose, and heroin is you know notoriously kind of um, a, a tricky thing when it when it comes to sort of mixing with alcohol, you can you can end up dead, and that would, and that would explain a lot. So you can't go sort of back in time and 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 you know say with you know definitive one hundred percent certainty what happened. It's just impossible. There's no toxicology toxicology report available. All the records that I tried to find that were at the hospital, have have disappeared. Hmm. So the reception has been interesting because, you know, there is a, a, an element of the ACDC fan base who just will not accept that Bond had anything to do with heroin, even though it's on the record. And, you know, Mark Evans from ACDC told me when I wrote my first book that Bond almost got sacked for a heroin, heroin overdose back in 1975. Yeah. Michael Brown, the, the former manager of ACDC, talked of a second heroin OD in 1976. So I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that he had a third overdose in 1980. I mean, it just seems to me that the it's an unnecessary mystery because what does it really change about the history of the band and, and Bond? I don't think that it, I don't think that it would well, if, if the truth all of a sudden appeared, I don't think that it changes any sort of legacy for the band or the individual or the individ- other individuals yeah. involved. No, and, and that's why, you know, it, it sort of it bemuses me when people say, Oh, I'm disrespecting Bon Scott. No, give me a fucking break. You know, like no, I'm doing this because I do respect him. I yeah, admire exactly. the guy. I want to find out how he died. His legacy any fames at all. He was a human being. You know, he wasn't just sort of this caricature rock god that everyone thinks he is. He was a he was a person with flaws who had you know human concerns and had relationship problems and and all sorts of problems like anyone else on this planet. And that's so, you know, when I write this book, I'm like I'm, I feel like I'm I'm humanizing someone who should have been humanized a long time ago. Instead, what you see, you know, with with um, you know, festivals like Bonfest in Scotland is like the celebration of this sort of Peter Pan figure, you know, which is which is just complete crap, complete crap, you know. 
Bond was a was a um, an imperfect guy. He had a lot of problems. He's a human being, you know, like like Silver Smith, some his ex girlfriend who I got quite close to before she died. She was really happy that I was finally, you know, writing a book that was showing you know, Bond with all his with all his warts, you know, rather than this sort of this cartoon character that that you know you you see celebrated in things like Bonfest, and that's why you know I just won't ever be a part of that. They would never want me to be a part of it either, mind, because I'm you know public enemy number one to to that group. But that's fine. I feel like I've I've done my bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that I'm really enjoying the book. I encourage anyone that hears this to go and read it and, and get some of these different accounts. And like your research, you can't deny how deep you went. And I, I really appreciate that you've done that. And I also appreciate you giving me an hour of your time and kind of going over some of this stuff because it's fascinating to me. I love it. And, uh, and I hope that there's more to come. So Jesse, I really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem, Corey. Good talking to you, Mike. Big, big thank you to Jesse for coming on and sharing his knowledge and time with us. Fun fact, ACDC was actually one of the first concerts I ever saw. Won tickets calling into a radio station. So, awesome. Really enjoyed that. Hope you did too. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thanks. Get your song facts back It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.